Hello and welcome to Canadian Made, the podcast that goes behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry to tell the stories of the unsung heroes who make incredible content in this nation. Today on the podcast, we have Joanna Sierra Kamla. Joanna is the costume designer on Murdoch Mysteries, and this was a super fun episode because I learned so much about the behind the scenes of how the costume comes to life. She also gets into the differences between working on a period show versus a contemporary show, and a lot of the different challenges are quite unexpected. Also, being a freelancer, Joanna gives some great tips on how to handle the lulls in your career and how to deal with rejection, which we definitely all need some advice on how to get through from time to time. So if you have particular interest in costumes or you're just generally an entertainment behind the scenes enthusiast, you are going to love this episode because there are so many behind the scenes goodies. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with the wonderfully talented and incredibly lovely Joanna. I want to first start, and I apologize for an overly broad question at the beginning, but I do want to know about the process of costume designing. So when you get involved on a project, at what stage, what you kind of have to bring at that point, and then how it evolves through the, through the life of the show. Uh, well, usually we start off with the interview. So you've been sent the script and it's become very common now that we put together mood boards or images or some uh, costume designers do illustrations. In some t- sometimes I say that the preparing for a costume design interview is the best part of the job because you don't have the producer's input by that point or the uh, the actress's, you know, issues with certain types of genes coloring your your visions. So when I first started in the business, I tried to come up with those looks and those images and those mood boards to give what I thought what the producer wanted or the showrunner, the director. And then after a while, I realized I should just design the show the way I completely want to right at this moment because it's just the interview. And this way, if they love that vision, then they get an authentic version of myself and of my work. You start off with these boards, these images, you know, now it's all digital. So you send the images off and you hope that with these images, these boards, these creative discussions in the interview process that you have, uh, you're on, you're on equal ground, or at least you have the same creative vision or they're on board with your vision. You get to understand if they even have a creative vision or if they just want you to take the helm and go. So that can be, that can be very interesting. So that would be, I'd say the first process, because you, you need to know what the project is about and you need to know if you can communicate with the people who are officially your employers. And if I can ask a question before we go to the next stage, sure. do you, how do you get inspired? Do you go search like the period or if there's no period, you know, what, what kind of things do you take inspiration from? And then do you make it for each character or how specific do you get in these books? Well, it always starts off with a script and or production Bible or whatnot. Writers write scripts that inspire us for a reason. They inspire the talent. They inspire everyone to 
get involved with the project. So oftentimes when you're reading it, you can get a sense of the character. Is she going to be, you know, a beat up leather jacket, skinny jeans girl, but with Converse? Like you can just get a sense of the character along the way. Uh, it also can help if you've already been told who is going to be playing those roles, because oftentimes they'll tell you, you know, this is a this is a Julia Roberts production or we've got, you know, Sam Neill to play the role. So that can also give you a bit of an inspiration. So with a modern day piece, you, you obviously read the script and characters are a bit tropey. You know, is she going to be a lady detective? Is she a lady photographer? Is she a housewife? And you can even start off with the basics of, of you know, typing in housewife into Google and seeing what you can find. Research process leads you from one thing to another thing to another thing. So you may start off looking at modern day housewives, but it may take you to 1960s house dresses. Uh, and then there may be a specific pattern or texture or something that really inspires you. So it's a wonderful adventure, the research process. Uh, if it's period, you're very lucky because you know, you know exactly where to go. Well, if it's period, you know if you're going to a Sears catalog or if you're going to a Vogue archive with period, you know exactly where to start. You can even start by typing into the Google machine, you know, 1900 fashion and seeing what starts to pop up. You find the images that, that speak to you the most or maybe you're maximalist and you just take them all. And when you start gathering them together, you find that you, you keep leaning towards certain types of elements or design looks or colors or silhouettes or whatever. And you can start to start to gather them together and you can see that there's certain similarities and how they speak of a character. Amazing. Amazing. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Once you have the job, how do you balance kind of your imagination with productions, vision and budget? Well, every production definitely has its own hierarchy in, in a creative process. On some shows, you have just the director who gets to have creative input. On some shows, you have a director, a producer, a showrunner, a network, a studio on top of that. So every production definitely has its different ways of navigating that. So on Murdoch Mysteries, we're very fortunate that uh, the production trusts me and my team to just go with the period. I spent a lot of time doing research, especially since every year of Murdoch, uh, we age a year because everybody ages. So when I first started, it was 1906 or something like that, or 1905, and now it's 19, 1909 is the latest season. So I, uh, I'm always looking to try and see what new inspiration we can find for Murdoch Mysteries. My fairy tale situation of Murdoch Mysteries notwithstanding, you would, uh, on a regular show, on a normal show, you would uh, have images and or sketches in which you would have approved by, again, director, showrunner, network. On a modern day show, you put together image boards, discuss the characters, and then when you're having the costume fittings, you take photographs. So the fitting photos show, you know, the different leather jackets that you've been beat up leather jackets that you found for your lady detective and the different jeans and whatnot. And I never like to use any photographs where the actor was not comfortable in the costume. But so now you have these photographs and they get sent off digitally to the world to somebody sitting in a meeting in uh, Orange County, let's say, wearing Uggs because it's 22 degrees and they think it's cold. 
and they uh, flip through the images on their phone and they're like, I don't like that jacket. Oh my God, I don't like those jeans. And sometimes those opinions filter all the way back through to you here in Canada where it's minus 22 degrees and you have to navigate the opinions and thoughts of all of these people weighing in. Sometimes modern day clothing is much more difficult to do because you have, everybody knows what a lawyer looks like. Everybody knows what a lawyer is supposed to look like on TV, right? Everybody knows that. People, people have these preconceived notions so they feel they can weigh in. So the more opinions you have, the harder it can be for you to do your job. So I was on a show where, you know, they kept rejecting anything with pattern and then they kept rejecting anything that had color in it. And then what happens is your creative box gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And you're like, well, they only seem to like certain colors and they only seem to like certain silhouettes, this questionable network, right? That you've never met because you're just emailing them off to gosh knows where. And the, and the creative box gets smaller and smaller. So then you start questioning yourself along the way. What can I actually even possibly find for these characters anymore that are going to fulfill the needs of these people? And then one day you meet these network people and they're like in like stretched out terry cloth sweatpants. And you're like, I can't believe you people have been put in charge of what you want a fashionable show to look like. <laughs> It can be kind of crazy, <laughs> whatever. It can be kind of crazy. So there's a very good friend of mine says, it's not about being a costume designer. It's about being a costume decider. Oh. Yeah. So sometimes you have to decide, like, you know, it's not about my beautiful, you know, wide lapel. It's just about making a decision because we have to make many decisions and you have to make them very quickly because you've got the cast are rolling in and the fittings are happening and the meetings and the camera and the shooting and everything. And then your crew are coming in with their exciting problems. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about the differences between contemporary uh, productions versus period productions, because I think that there is an assumption that period productions would be much more onerous because I think that people assume that you're making a lot of these costumes from scratch, which I'm sure isn't the case. So can you talk about the difference between, you know, what you're buying, what you're kind of finessing and what you're actually making from scratch? Well, I will speak just on Murdoch Mysteries. How's that? Perfect. Because, Perfect. because there you go. When I came on to Murdoch Mysteries, I had watched, uh, I had watched several of the previous seasons. And even though it's absolutely period that every man's basically in a black suit and every woman's basically in a cream blouse and a brown skirt. I felt it was important for the audience, especially since not all of our audience are that young, is to remember who the heck the murderer was. I wanted to give every character much more of a distinct uh, look palette because I would watch the shows and I'd be like, I don't know who's the murderer. It's just another man in a black suit because period-wise, that's appropriate. I started wanting to give more characterization and colors to our different characters. We had many more female characters being developed over the years, which has been really incredible. And I, again, if it was a period, if it was completely period, you know, and if it was really Toronto, what we were wearing, you'd be looking again at a cream, cream blouse and a brown skirt. So we do do a lot of rentals. We go and we, we get to go to Montreal for, for a couple of days and they've got some incredible costume houses there. 
and we do, a, you know, we get 12 racks of rentals. Uh, and then we also do similar things to the costume houses in Toronto. So that means we end up having our own warehouse. But Murdoch Mysteries is 15 seasons old. And even though the time has passed, it's hard not to repeat those costumes, especially when you may have 12 guest stars of an episode. So it's hard not to repeat them. So what this is all leading towards is I started buying modern pieces because there was that whole Victorian blouse phase. You know, free people were doing it. Zara was doing it. I started buying those types of things to mix in with the show because they're frilly and they're pretty and they look different and you can get them in multiples. And multiples is always great, even just for laundry purposes. We do do, a, we do, do some building on Murdoch as well. We try and find ways. We have a very small department when it comes to period shows, actually. We have only nine people, which is considered to be a really small costume department for a period show. Uh, so we build things, we augment things, we buy modern pieces, we mix and match them in and change the buttons and cut them up the back and change the trim and stuff like that. So I guess that's the process for, for me on Murdoch. It's just between my large warehouse some modern pieces and what we get to build. We just craft together our own world of trying to make each character look unique and fun. I saw this interview that you did with the CBC where you talked about how you bought this dress from Zara that was like brown, had puffy sleeves, was long. Mm -hmm. It was, a, you know, a little frill at the bottom and you cut out the front of it and put in this beautiful lace shirt underneath. And then you were put uh, arms as lace as well. And I just could not believe then when I saw the still of the character wearing it in the show, that that whole outfit had been constructed from Zara and H&M. That was so nuts to me. So it's, it's really cool what you do. And I just, it must be so much fun for you to think of these ideas. Oh, absolutely. I, I find it very creative. When I first showed up at Murdoch, I can tell you my team was, it was a team that had been there for many years and they were used to a much more traditional approach. And they, I think they were thought I was crazy. I think they thought I was totally off my rocker where I, again, you're, you're right. We would buy something with puffy sleeves from Zara and another lace top from H&M and, and cut them together, add some velvet I mean, we did still make the skirt. The skirt was this gorgeous cashmere. You can't really fake the skirts. Those we have to still make. But <laughs> I try, I, as I said, I try and, and, and be creative and interesting and memorable. We needed multiples because she had a stunt double. She was getting blood on herself. And if we had made them all from scratch, it would have taken five times longer. Coming on to a show like Murdoch, where there's been 15 series, how is that adjustment period? You said, you know, you have a bit of a different approach, but I'm sure you also have to build on the costume designers of the past season. So is that intimidating to come into a show that's been running so long, or is it a chance to kind of breathe in some new life? I would definitely say it was intimidating when I, I first arrived because the previous two costume designers had done such incredible work and people really loved, really loved them and what they had done. I'm there four years now, but I look back even to the very first episode I did when I arrived at Murdoch and realized that I did, used my kooky ways almost immediately. I watched the show and I was like, really, I put that together already? Like, I, I feel like I had taken my time into getting to 
to, you know, my design approach or whatever I was going to do. But as I said, I look back to the first two episodes I did and I was like, oh, I was already there. It already <laughs> happens. There were things that I did in the beginning that I thought were the way that things were supposed to happen. You know, it took me two years before I went through and got rid of fabrics I thought I would never, I was not interested in. Because I arrived, it was incredible. I arrived to all of these things in existence, all this fabric, all of these pieces and, and you know, a lot of things set up. But since I've been there, we've definitely built more uh, and acquired more, I would say, in the past four years that I've been there than they had in the previous 12 years. But you've got to think about that as they always thought they never knew they were coming back. It was always like, we're just renting because it's just one season and we're just two seasons. And now CB and then City TV canceled us. And then we're just doing one more season. So it's not, no one had an idea that Murdoch was going to go this long. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Now you have the luxury. We, we have the luxury. Yeah. And, and we, and we do the math. We're like, it makes more sense financially for us to make something that we don't mind if it gets stabbed or ruined that we know we have multiples of because even laundry even having two of the same shirt helps because you know you have laundry to do everybody wears a white shirt in our show and so you've got six to ten white shirts to to wash every single day and they're all specific right everybody's got a different type of fit to their shirt they've all we, we spend a lot of time trying to find just the right collar for everybody so some episodes you'll see you're like oh there was the new prototype that didn't work out so well and uh, you think we'd have it down, but every year it's almost like a new, a new test. Every year we're like, it's almost like, well, everybody changes slightly too, right? Over, over time, you know, men's necks change slightly and everybody is aging. So the other thing I was really interested to learn is that wardrobe has a preferred blood mixture. Mm-hmm. I always had a preconceived notion, obviously wrongly so, that it was just FX or just makeup that got to mm-hmm. say, okay, this is what's going to look best on camera. But in fact, you have a way to do it so that, you know, it could be removed if you need to have longevity of a costume. So, um, can you, can, yeah, can you tell a little bit more, more about the behind the scenes of having destroyed costumes? <laughs> well, my, uh, my very long term collaborator, her name's Billy Blast. She and I have been together for a very long time. She has come up with her own blood recipe. Her job, she's the set supervisor. So her job is to be on set with the actors and she gets to paint in the blood when we use it. And on Murdoch, we always think that there's going to be more blood than there is, but we always, there always ends up being less blood. However, she has her own very specific blood mixture, which involves chocolate syrup and red food coloring and, and whatnot. Whatever happens, this recipe that she's created, the secret recipe that she, you know, smuggles around, comes out of clothing. And and it really shows up as a beautiful kind of reddy brown on clothing. But makeup uses something else. And props has something else that looks good on the ground. Props also has, uh, what's really cool is, they're like decals, but they're blood. So you can actually put down a pool of blood, but they're actually just a, like a cutout. It looks like a cutout decal when you're holding it or something you throw on your windshield, you know, like some kind of a gummy thing. <laughs> so they have these wonderful like instant pools of blood, which are really fun. We all have very different types of blood. Special effects has their own types of blood that may squirt out of things. And then there's also blood that looks more like dried blood or 
it's a whole beautiful art painting process for sure. We also have to spend a lot of time making clothing look dirty or worn already. So we'll, we, and it's usually on people that need multiples, right? Cause they're going to get into a gunfight or whatever. We did a episode, a cowboy episode where we needed three to five copies of every cowboy outfit because they were, they needed stunt doubles, riding doubles, gunshot doubles, that type of thing. And uh, so that means we had to get everything new and or make it new. And then it all has to be broken down and broken down, meaning they look like they've actually worn it for more than just like 10 minutes out of the package. And I can tell you, cowboy clothes are also supposed to be durable, so they don't really wear down that well. uh, We were fortunate. We don't have a full-time breakdown department on Murdoch. Many incredible shows like Nightmare Alley and What We Do in Shadows do have incredible breakdown departments. But the breakdown process includes sanding and painting and washing things. And there's, there's a whole incredible art to breakdown that uh, I'm a great admirer of, actually. Wow, that is so interesting. So in terms of your favorite type of production to work on, if you could, you know, create a dream project for yourself, what would that look like? It would probably be a story about a time-traveling costume designer. Really? Yes, who gets to travel in time and shop wherever she wants. (laughs) That would be my dream. Just to to, go through every era. Yeah. I would like to go through different eras very much. uh, You know, the remake of Quantum Leap, for instance, that would be very (laughs) exciting to work on. I would love that type of thing. Time traveling shows are very difficult. My friends who've done them because every episode is a completely different period. Right. So you have to set up and then you've got to get all the accoutrements for that. But I think that that's. That's what I would love to do. I got to do the late 70s with whatever, uh, early 80s with whatever Linda, which was a web series. And I really enjoyed that process. I really, for some reason, like the time period between like 79 and 83, almost 84. I'm really fond of that. Men's 60s, 70s, I'm also a huge fan of. You know, those, those are the periods that I'd love to touch on next. I have a very large men's 70s, 60s, 70s collection that I feel like I've rescued over the years. And uh, You're ready all, for action. They're all, they're waiting. Every time I see them, they're like, when's our movie coming, Josie? When are you coming out? <laughs> we get to go and be in the movies. So wait, is this your personal collection or what, what do you mean your collection? Well, my mother has an attic. Like we can't help collecting stuff in this line of work. Like just I'm sure you find amazing stuff all the time. And people always give you things as well because they know who you are, what what it is that you do. And they hope that their grandmother's first stole is going to end up on TV one day. I have a I have a lot of clothing. And over the years, when you go to thrift stores, you feel like you're rescuing items. And especially when they become rarer and rarer. Uh, you can't, now you can't go into a thrift store and find anything earlier than like 98, if you're lucky. So you always feel like you're rescuing things. So I have a collection. I have a lot of men's suits for some reason. I have a, I have a thing for men's suits and men's neckties. I own about 1200 neckties myself (laughs) that are, uh, that are separated between the time periods and then within the time periods by color. And they're just waiting. They're all waiting for the day. What advice would you give to someone who's listening who thinks, oh, this is, this is so 
great. I would love to be a costume designer and I really don't even know where to start. Well, many people who have those interests are usually at a costume or theater or fashion school to start with, but I'm always a big believer in volunteering. I'm the CFC has great opportunities. Uh, you never know what collaborators you're going to find along your way. I do, or I suggest uh, if you have a chance to shadow, to intern, to volunteer, even, even if you start off in your theater department, there are a lot of elements to being a costume designer other than the picking great clothes. You've got to be a good leader. You've got to be able to really know how to talk with your actors, to communicate with them. There is a lot of respect listening that are as important. You know, got to know how to navigate a team of people and also the language of clothing and know about how things are cut, how things, how fabric uh, reacts to different elements. A lot of that you learn along the way, but uh, you have to have a fascination for that. But I think it's really important to start off with volunteering, even if it's on a short film, just to see if you can if you even like it. Some people may not realize if they even like those types of hours. You know, costume design is not a nine to five job by any means. It's a two, four, seven job. It seems sure. like there's there's very few jobs in the entertainment industry that are nine to five, really. So it's, you choose a life because you're passionate about it, right? That's, that's what keeps everyone going. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And when people say, you know, when the show is over and I can get back to real life, you know, people say things like that when they're in a hard show. I'm like, this is my real life. Like when I'm not working, that's my in-between. That's my waiting to get back to my real life. You wrote a, a really amazing blog on your on your website, which I have to ask you about. And it was called, What Happens When You Don't Get a Job? So yes. I'm wondering, you know, what, what you can tell people to help them through those tough periods. Well, when I was younger, you spend a lot of time in, in this business preparing for an interview. It's like preparing for an audition, but you don't get them that often. So preparing for an interview is, is an integral part. And as I, I said at the beginning of the podcast, sometimes can be the best part of the show is, is, being, is preparing for the job because the job may end up not being what you think it is. But uh, I, I did learn along the way how important it was to also not get the job. So when you don't get the job, you have got to, you've had the opportunity when preparing the script and the interview to immerse yourself into a new story. You've had the opportunity to go to a different time period, to experience these new characters. And you've had the opportunity to meet people in the costume design interview and hopefully impress them. But you found out that you have not been hired and you didn't get the job. And I've definitely been in that situation and been pretty devastated. And then I always realize afterwards, whether it's a couple of weeks, a couple of months or a couple of years, how it was the right thing to do. It was it was right for me because something else came along that was more important to my career or the universe or whomever you want to believe in. They were like, no, I think you've worked too hard. And instead you need to go off and create the Canadian costume design awards, or you need to go to Paris and write a book, or you need to do something else with your life. I don't think the universe necessarily cares about you becoming famous or getting an Oscar. I think they care about you learning about important things along the way. And by not getting a show, uh, I think it's just the way of the world 
directing you to something else that they think is more important. And then also you've learned something in the interview. You've learned, again, about how people interact in the interview, what kind of questions they're interested in. And it just makes you even stronger for your next interview, for the next show that you're going to get, the next show that the universe wants you to have. I think it's such good advice. And not only for costume designers, but so many people who work in the industry who have to constantly put themselves out there like that and put in so much work at the forefront and then maybe it pays off, maybe it doesn't, but like you're saying, there's always, there's always something to be gained. So I think that's such a great perspective. Um, in terms of your favorite costume designers or your favorite movies, uh, what, what would you say that they, they are? What's a, maybe one movie or a couple movies that you're like, oh, those costumes are just, they're the best. Oh, well, there's so many that I love and there's so many that I admire for sure. I've just finished season four of Miss Maisel, which I adore. There is there's incredible strip club in season four. The costumes are just to die for the, the, the layering and the, the textures and the colors and the interest and the sparkles are just so much fun. I absolutely am crazy about Miss Maisel. The colors that they use are incredible. And the work done on that is just incredible. The fitting and the colors. Ugh, it's so great. One of my favorite movies is, is uh, Amelie as well. I just love how the costumes work with the, the production design and the color and, and the quirkiness of the character. Those in general are my favorite when the, when the costume design and art direction are like so on the same page. It's something that I try and do on a much smaller level. Like on Murdoch Mysteries, I'll go to the art department and I'll be like, what color is the wall going to be in this room? And you're like, oh, great. I'm also doing green. Then you walk off and you're like, I hope that's going to look good together. So we do it on a much smaller level on Murdoch. Or I'll be like, hey, I've got this yellow dress going on. Do you got some yellow cushions? And I'm like, yeah, we can put some yellow cushions in there. And you're like, awesome. So we try. We, tr we, we try and do some kind of color balancing on Murdoch to make these beautiful photos. But again, you know, it is, it is considered a small production. Murdoch Mysteries in comparison to like something like Nightmare Alley, for example. In terms of your own career, have you had a moment where you, it was kind of like your Hollywood moment and you felt like, wow, I'm, I'm really working in the industry. I'm doing it. I'd say my most Hollywood moment in general was uh, the creation of the Canadian Costume Design and Arts Awards called the CAFCAT Awards. I worked really hard on this on this event, I really wanted to make sure that Canadian talent was appreciated. And it was a specific project of mine to make happen along the way. And it would be, you know, at the first Canadian Costume Design Awards event at the Avicon Museum in 2019, where I would be, I was standing there in this like, gorgeous gown made by a Toronto designer, fabric I'd bought in Paris. And I had the perfect hair and makeup and People were so happy to be there and, and be recognized. And the community of costume designers who were in the room uh, were just overjoyed. And I didn't sit down at all that night because everybody wanted to, everybody wanted to talk to me. And I would say that was like my most exciting Hollywood moment was creating this place and creating this event and, and helping create this, this world in which everybody felt that they were recognized and everybody felt that their contributions were important. And I'm, you know, I, I said to a girlfriend of mine the other day, I said, I don't think I'm ever going to get nominated for an Oscar, but I think my, my place in life is to have 
to create these awards and the situation to celebrate all of my peers. And I will continue to do that. I think that's so wonderful. And, and I think I, I can relate to you in that way about uh, wanting to boost the Canadian voice and wanting to celebrate Canadian talent because um, we have so much of it and so much of it is worth, you know, bolstering. So I think that's so fantastic that you're doing that. So in terms of your favorite Canadian content or, a, you know, a Canadian costume designer you want to give a shout out to or a particular show um, that you love, feel free to name a couple. Don't want to pick oh my you, gosh. want you to pick oh your favorite God. I'm child. I'm going to get in trouble for missing somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I have so many favorite Canadian costume designers, but I think that's also because they've become my mentors and my peers along the way. The organization of CAFCAD that we created like way back in 2006 has really brought our community closer together. It used to be, it used to be we would see each other sort of as enemies in the interview off in the interview room. Uh, and barely know who each other was. And now, you know, we have each other on speed dial. Hey, I saw you did that thing with the blood and the whatchamacallit. And how did you do that? And where did you find that sneaker? And we've become, a, we've all become a lot closer. And, to, and then we recommend each other. Oh, like I'm not available, but you so have to call Nicole. Like she's totally right for your project. I mean, I have so many that I, that I admire greatly. I, I, if I start naming them all, I think I'm going to get in trouble for missing them. What about particular projects that are Canadian that, that you um, want to give a shout out to? You know, I know that you did a thing on the Porter, so I was really excited to see that. I was, love seeing what my friends in Winnipeg are doing. Yes. So, so that was really, and the, the cinematography of that was just exceptional as well. Very beautiful. I'm rewatching Anne with an E for the second time. So Stunning. incredible. Stunning. So incredible. Yeah. I, uh, I'm so sorry that that never went on to a fourth season. I know. So is everybody else. You're in the majority yeah. there. So yeah. it's, it's a shame no one picked it up and took up that opportunity, but or, here or we least, are. <laughs> or at least the, the, or at least the movie that, you know, at least a movie to, to, I'm, I'm, so I'm halfway through season three and I'm, I'm a bit worried about how it's, how my heart's going to get broken at the end. <laughs> <laughs> are you in a union? I am. I'm in the Unifor NABE 700, which okay. is mostly an Ontario-based union. Yes. But I have lots of friends in IATSE all across Canada. Okay, We're that's really friends. interesting. <laughs> yeah, because I, I wanted to ask about that. If people like were looking for certain things, if there's a particular place to go, if there's multiple places, because I find, I'll say it, the IATSE very confusing. I don't know who goes where and what happens. So that's interesting. Well, IATSE has many... Um, I don't know. I can't remember what they're called, but they're like factions. So you'll have an IATSE camera and then you'll have an IATSE craft service and then you'll have an yes. IATSE technicians. And, and in the States, you know, the drivers are of a different union. So, yeah. And then uh, across the provinces, there are different numbers as well. Uh, but in Toronto, it would be IATSE 873 would okay. be where to look into. And, you know, it can be very it can be very challenging to break into the union. I mean, a union, a union, it's not there to teach you how to do the job. Like, you do learn along the way, but it's you know it wants to have technicians who have experience. Uh, on the other hand, in NABET, for instance, there are intern programs, uh, intern apprentice programs, so they get something you know around the minimum wage mark, and they get to come and be on a show for five weeks. And I could tell you, if I was 22, I would murder somebody for that experience. I would have just died to go and be an apprentice on 
Murdoch Mysteries, for example. And then do you, when you apply for those apprentice programs, do you have to have any qualifications or it's, you could just have graduated and in costume design or something like that? And you could have just graduated for sure. You don't need to, you don't need to have any onset experience. Actually, that is the apprenticeship program at NABET is about not having that experience and receiving it in the five weeks. But there are you know, there are 45 names there and I get to go through them and choose. And I'm, I'm going to choose the people, especially if it's for Murdoch Mysteries, I'm going to choose the people with historical fashion backgrounds or theater backgrounds or, and the most important thing, a valid driver's license. Really? Most Because you're running around to different shops running, and things? Absolutely. You're running around to different shops or there might be some emergency and you get thrown. The, you don't need to have a car. You just need to be legally allowed to drive the car because, uh, you know, you may get thrown the keys and be told to go off and find this particular thing or pick up that or even get coffee for everybody. Uh, If you don't drive, let me tell you, I'm probably not going to hire you. Thank you so much for your time. I learned so much. This was so much fun. It was really lovely to meet you. And, you know, I hope I get to meet you in person one day. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to rate and review our podcast. It's the best way that you can support this show.